Welcome to the JNMP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up in this edition, a look at an unusual variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome, the pharyngeal cervical brachial variant. Typically, patients present with bulbar symptoms in association with neck weakness and upper limb weakness. Uh, often, patients also complain of uh, sensory disturbance in their in their arms as well. And some patients actually also go on to develop leg weakness, but the leg weakness is never more prominent than the um, PCB weakness. But before we get to that advice, a look at an uncommon but difficult to resolve complication of Parkinson's disease therapy, that of dopamine dysregulation syndrome. This is explored in a recent GenMP paper led by Roberto Chilia from the Parkinson Institute in Milan. I spoke to him over the phone about the study and began by simply asking what dopamine dysregulation syndrome is. Dopamine dysregulation syndrome in Parkinson's disease is a, a relatively uncommon behaviour complication of dopaminergic treatment in a minority of patients and it is described as um, a pattern of compulsive medication intake that is very similar to uh, what usually described in subjects with the drug addiction. And in particular, patients uh, have this pattern of self-increase their doses of medication and uh, in excess of what is uh, usually required to control the motor symptoms and uh, obviously without medical approval. Usually this disorder, this behavioral disorder, does not usually complicate the, the early stages of the disease, but rather involves the um, patients with the advanced disease uh, and when uh, they present with uh, motor fluctuations and, and dyskinesia. This uh, may be because uh, they feel the, um, the high associated with the fast-acting uh, effect of uh, medica- dopaminergic medications. Usually the fast-acting medications such as uh, levodopa or um, some dopamine agonists like apomorphine, for example, and, um, as described in the first reports. And uh, this um, high feeling is uh, very similar to what uh, described in the cocaine abusers. So in Parkinson's disease, in the most severe cases uh, of patients with dopamine dysregulation syndrome, they complain about being in uh, off state, uh, even if uh, they present with uh, a motor dyskinesia. So when the motor uh, uh, part of the, um, of the brain of the circuit, of the pomenergic circuit is uh, uh, clearly overdosed, they feel that they are still uh, underdosed and uh, they are complaining about being in off. And this is uh, um, this has very, dramatic effects and on their everyday living and obviously for the caregivers and family members as well. Right, okay. And and this is fairly rare dopamine dysregulation syndrome. I mean, your paper is essentially a res- retrospective case-controlled study. So how many patients did you see um, with DDS in, in your clinic? Yeah, actually, uh, as you said, since this is uh, um, this was designed as a retrospective paper, I cannot uh, actually provide uh, an accurate estimate of the prevalence in our population. The feeling uh, um, I have is that uh, I can confirm what is uh, reported in literature already, and did a frequency of uh, approximately 
3-4% of patients. In our center, my impression is that the prevalence is lower than 5%. Sure, yes, that, that was a, a slightly unfair question because what you really looked at in this paper were the, the clinical and the neuropsychological characterization and, and the management and also the, the long-term outcomes. So when you looked at these patients over over six years in, in your clinic, what did you find in terms of the, the general predictors for the ones that went on to develop DDS? Well, we uh, confirmed a lot of um, findings previously reported uh, and mainly we found that patients with young age onset uh, uh, of Parkinson's disease, uh, namely below 45 years of age, are um, more clearly are exposed to, to develop this complication. And uh, another important point is that the personal history and of drug abuse or depression, this history makes them more vulnerable to develop these complications. But this is not only related only to the personal, um, but also to the family history, because the family history of um, uh, drug abuse or uh, also of um, uh, Parkinson's disease itself in first-degree relatives are independent predictors of dopamine dysregulation syndrome. So it seems that there is a, a very strong uh, inherited component. It might be either genetically associated uh, or they're, they're being exposed to an environment uh, um, associated with, with some uh, um, abuse of um, substances. I mean, alcohol abuse is the most common, but also other drugs. And uh, also the family history for Parkinson's disease is very important because uh, and it, it is independent from the depression itself associated with having a, um, a relative with a with Parkinson's. Mm. And, and what about their, their Parkinson's disease? Did you find any specific features related to that? Yeah, we found that the only specific feature of uh, Parkinson's disease was a greater difference uh, of the severity of motor scores between the medication off state compared to the on state. And uh, we believe that this finding suggests an, an, an excellent response to the pulmonergic drugs. And this would predispose uh, patients to the, um, feeling the difference uh, between uh, being off and being on. And uh, this might correlate with uh, feeling the high, as uh, reported previously in, uh, in, um, in drug addiction. And uh, still, uh, we found that uh, the motor symptoms in the medication of states uh, is more severe and this might be associated with uh, maybe a greater extent of uh, dopaminergic neuronal loss but uh, this is to be confirmed in uh, in uh, other studies so it's sounding more and more similar to you know to a drug addiction to to something like cocaine if you've got that family history and and also this this difference between the off and on Oh yes, yes, yes. Cocaine is directly associated with uh, with uh, not dopamine release itself, but uh, the cocaine um, reduces the reuptake of dopamine, so increases the synaptic dopamine uh, availability and uh, overall dopaminergic transmission. But uh, uh, besides cocaine, 
also other drugs of abuse uh, such as alcohol or uh, heroin are associated with, um, with an increased release of uh, dopamine in the mesocortical limbic uh, pathways. This is related to the drug addiction reward system. There are several lines of evidence suggesting that uh, uh, dopamine dysregulation syndrome actually is uh, very similar to um, drug addiction as in terms of pathophysiology. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole handful of, of links and similarities there. So on to the, the management of this, um, what was the most successful option that you found? Another feature that we found to be very similar between uh, patients with Parkinson's disease and dopamine dysregulation syndrome and those with the history of drug addiction is how to make a treatment successful because it is very challenging because once the patient develops dopamine dysregulation syndrome, their mission is very hard to achieve. And we found that um, in our sample, less than half of patients had a full remission of uh, these symptoms, uh, and we followed them for an average of three years. So we had a long uh, observation uh, over time of this patient. So it's very important to prevent this disorder. So, I mean, what options are there then for treating it? Yeah, overall, uh, the most successful management uh, option uh, was not uh, uh, related to drugs we found that the most successful option was the effective supervision by family members and caregivers because we did not find any effective drug. So the effective supervision was the most effective option and concerning pharmacological options, we found that the use of the atypical antipsychotic clozapine was um, associated with a successful outcome. And uh, also in the most severe cases, uh, we found that uh, those with the most severe uh, motor fluctuations, uh, duodenal levodopa infusion was uh, effective in uh, uh, reducing this disorder because it stabilized the need of, um, uh, of levodopa and aminergic stimulation because it was the most continuous uh, delivery and with the, the supervision, what would you tell caregivers or, or family? Um, what kind of things should they be doing or, or watching out for? The, the final message and what um, we um, got from this message from this study is that uh, we um, should get some red flags of uh, behavioral abnormalities in patients. So we uh, usually advise uh, family members to be aware of this possible complication, uh, especially in, uh, in subjects with a young age at onset and um, possibly personal family history of um, depression or drug abuse, as uh, stated before. And in particular, family members and caregivers should be careful about the compliance to therapy because uh, what is the first sign is that um, Patients usually start by asking clinicians to increase their daily dose and because they do not feel to be well compensated. Family members should just look at this. So why patients may ask medications to be increased while their motor performance is excellent? 
And so when uh, there is this pattern of uh, not being satisfied from the patients in, in terms of motor control, while actually from outside uh, a family member see that there, the, there is no problem, no limitation in their activity or daily living, this might be a red flag since the very beginning. Great. Well, that's um, some very useful advice. And of course, there's, there's plenty more detail of, of the study and, and the syndrome in the paper. So listeners can, can go and have a look at, at that for more. So, Roberto, thanks very much for coming on. So, thanks a lot. Thanks to you. It's been a pleasure. If you found that useful, you may want to listen to our accompanying podcast on impulse control disorder in Parkinson's disease, produced with the British Neuropsychiatry Association. David Okai, a consultant in psychological medicine in Oxford, discusses assessing and managing the disorder. You can find that podcast alongside this one. And now, an unusual variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome, the pharyngeal cervical brachial variant. Benjamin Wakeley, who's a consultant neurologist at the Gloucestershire Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, has put together a review for JNMP on this, and he talked me through what clinicians need to know. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Harriet. So first of all, could you give us a, the nutshell definition of, of PCB and how physicians would, would typically see it? Okay, so PCB, or, or the full, full name, uh, pharyngeal cervical brachial variant of GBS, is a rare form of uh, axonal GBS, which typically presents with rapidly progressive oropharyngeal and cervicobrachial, that is to say neck, upper limb, and vulva uh, weakness, all in association with um, areflexia. And, and you write in the paper that it's not very well recognised, is that so? Well, it's something that, that among neurologists in the UK and, and general physicians is certainly not very well recognised. It, as I said, it's a rare variant of GBS. For example, there was a, a large um, study done in uh, Massachusetts General a few years ago which looked at 250 consecutive patients with GBS. And only 3% of patients in that study had this pattern of weakness. So in that sense, it is quite rare. Right, OK. And um, what are the common characteristics of people who tend to, tend to get it? Are there any risk factors or predictive factors for it? Well, it's very similar to other forms of GBS in the sense that uh, at least two-thirds of patients describe antecedent infectious symptoms which are either an upper respiratory tract infection or, or diarrhoea which precede the onset of neurological symptoms. And, and what about age or sex or anything like that? From a recent Japanese study of more than 100 patients with this form of GBS, uh, the, the mean age was about 40 and it was slightly more common in males. Right, okay. And, and we've covered some of these, but are there any other general clinical features that physicians should be aware of? Typically, patients present with, as I said, bulbar symptoms in association with neck weakness and upper limb weakness. Uh, often patients also complain of uh, sensory disturbance in their, in their arms as well. And some patients actually also go on to develop leg weakness, but the leg weakness is never more prominent than the um, PCB weakness. And talk us through how it overlaps with other syndromes such as Fisher's and, and Bickerstaff brain stem encephalitis. What's the, the crossover with these? Well, GBS is composed of a, a series of 
uh, overlapping subtypes. And um, PCB is, plays a, an important um, part in that spectrum. And it overlaps um, both clinically and serologically with uh, Fisher syndrome. Do we know much about the, the pathophysiology? Have there been any antibodies identified that are associated with it? Well, in the case of PCB, um, early work suggested that uh, an antibody against GT1A could be responsible for this phenotype. Now, the thing that was special about this particular antibody was that it didn't cross-react with GT1B. And at this point, it's worth saying that in the case of uh, Fisher syndrome, patients often display antibodies against GT1B, but all of uh, these antibodies cross-react with GT1A. And what we say is that antibodies that don't cross-react against GT1B are said to be monospecific. Determining why patients with anti-GT1 antibodies display PCB weakness is partially understood and probably re relates to the expression of GT1A within the nervous system. We know that GT1A is expressed in the human glossopharyngeal and vagal nerves, and this may explain bulbar weakness observed in these symptoms. It's also expressed to a lesser extent in the ocular motor nerve, and this also explains why uh, some patients with PCB develop ophthalmoplegia. And, and what about the neuronal pathology? Do we have a clear idea of what's going on there in this variant? Well, this variant uh, is characterised by an axonal type neuropathy um, as opposed to a demyelinating neuropathy. Okay. So that's the, the background and you know, the general characteristics. Um, but a lot of your paper is, is very practical because you're actually proposing new diagnostic criteria here. So could you just talk us through that kind of clinical nitty-gritty of, of, the, uh, of the, your proposed diagnostic criteria? So patients with uh, PCB typically present with a relatively symmetrical pattern of weakness involving the, the bulbar muscles, the neck muscles, and the, and the arm muscles. And this is associated with areflexia or hyperreflexia in majority of cases. In severe cases of PCB, there can be leg weakness, but there should never be more prominent than the PCB pattern of weakness. And also, in a percentage of patients, probably about 10%, reflexes are actually preserved, or in some cases, patients could be hyperreflexic. In the case of PCB, there shouldn't be any associated ataxia. And if this is present, it, it indicates overlap with Fisher syndrome. And if there's ataxia and additional altered consciousness, we would think about overlap with Bickerstaff brainstem encephalitis as well. Now, in terms of how these patients present, PCB is a monophasic illness. Uh, the interval between onset and nadir should be no longer than 28 days with subsequent clinical plateau or improvement. Now there are features which strongly support diagnosis of PCB, and these would be uh, evidence of an antecedent infectious uh, illness, which occurs in up to two thirds of patients, CSF, albuminocytological dissociation, that is to say CSF, which uh, has a relatively high protein in the absence of any cells, and also, of course, patients that have neurophysiological evidence of neuropathy. Um, the presence of certain anti-ganglioside antibodies is, of course, supportive, but many 
facilities don't process these antibodies and they may take several weeks to actually get the um, result. So they shouldn't be depended upon. So what, what then are the, the steps and the, you know, the differential diagnoses that clinicians should go through if, some, if they have a patient who they suspect has, has PCB? What would you advise here? Right, well, PCB does, of course, have some important differentials. And the three which I'll touch on are that of botulism, myasthenia gravis and brainstem stroke. And because, of course, most physicians are more familiar with myasthenia gravis and brainstem stroke, these are the conditions which tend to be mistaken for PCB in the emergency room. So there's one or two important things that um, we have to look at in terms of the way these patients present and some of the investigations which can be done early on to uh, differentiate between the the, the different um, mimics. First of all, obviously, the history. Um, In PCB, um, the onset of weakness tends to be over hours, whereas in brainstem stroke, obviously, it will be almost instantaneous, although it can be stuttering. In myasthenia, obviously, there's uh, patients describe fluctuation in their symptoms and there's often a degree of fatigability as well. In terms of early investigations, patients like this who who arrive in the emergency room will often have um, some form of brain imaging. And um, because most of the symptoms clinically are related to um, problems in the brain stem, if there are problems, then uh, an MRI scan is, is the best type of neuroimaging to, to arrange. And um, in PCB, of course, that the imaging should be normal. And then it's important to think about what other investigations you can do to differentiate between these conditions. Neurophysiology um, is obviously very important and doing uh, repetitive simulation studies will help differentiate between uh, PCB and botulism or myasthenia gravis. Although one thing is worth saying, and that is that quite a high proportion of patients with Guillain-Barre often have normal neurophysiological tests um, in the first week. So doctors shouldn't be put off if the tests are normal within the first week, but they should, of course, be repeated. So the next thing that we should do is a lumbar puncture. And uh, in the case of PCB, um, this should show high protein in the absence of any cells. Although, again... um, Doctors shouldn't be put off if uh, the CSF is normal, which is often the case. And in fact, some studies show that in the first week of uh, GBS, CSF is normal in nearly half of, uh, of cases. But it should certainly be normal uh, in botulism or myasthenia gravis. And then we, we can talk a little bit about some of the antibodies that one might want to look at. Um, obviously, in the case of myasthenia, we're looking for uh, acetylcholine receptor antibodies and anti-musk antibodies. And with PCB, we're looking for the different anti-ganglioside antibodies. But again, these aren't always positive in patients with PCB, and sometimes they do take a while to process. So the diagnosis shouldn't be uh, dependent on the presence of these different antibodies. Thank you. That's very clear and very helpful. And then finally, the, the next big question, um, what are the treatment options? Well, in terms of the treatment options, um, they're similar to that of other forms of GPS in the sense that um, there's supportive treatment. And then, and then of course, there's, there's the real decision on whether or not to initiate immunotherapy. And this will depend on uh, the availability and, and various contraindications as to whether or not the patient's given intravenous immunoglobulin or, or um, 
has a plasma exchange. And in the case of PCB, we also have to be very careful with respect to bulbar function and respiratory effort, and these can quickly deteriorate. And in that case, a uh, patient sometimes needs to have um, nasogastric feeding, or, or worse still, they need to be intubated and, and receive ventilatory support. Right. Okay. And do you have any final messages for for clinicians? I, mean, I guess with a lot of these rare things, a lot of it is just having it in the back of your mind. Well, I think the most important thing really, like other forms of um, Guillain-Barré syndrome, the diagnosis of PCP is a clinical diagnosis and um, providing that the, the onset and the progression of the, of the symptoms follows that of typical of GBS, then that should be enough to make the diagnosis without having to do any further investigations. Great. Well, thank you very much for, for all your advice. Thanks very much, Harriet. That's all for this month, but do go and have a look at those papers for more of the detail. As ever, they're free to access. Keep an eye out for more podcasts from us and the British Neuropsychiatry Association, which we'll be releasing over the next few months, and go to podcast.bmj.com for more audio across all of the BMJ's journals, including Practical Neurology and the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. And, of course, before too long, there'll be another JNMP podcast for you. Next time on helping multiple sclerosis patients make decisions about their care and why we need to point the finger at the striatum rather than the cortex when explaining behavioural and cognitive changes in neurodegeneration. Join us then.